Good morning, everyone. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. I want to thank Chip for teaching while I was away last week. A little kind of the plan for the rest of Philippians. So today we're going to do the first half of chapter 4. The plan is then to do the second half of chapter 4 next Sunday. And then that will leave us two Sundays open for the rest of the the quarter. At least one of those is going to be taken up with a study about joy and rejoicing in the book and what that means. That may take both of those. I don't don't know if it will. I haven't worked out all my notes um, for that yet. Um, But So we'll either spend two classes, the last two classes, talking about joy and rejoicing and what that means in the book, or we'll spend one of the Sundays doing that and then potentially a survey or review for the the fourth Sunday um, uh, as we look at the end of the year. Um, We're going to read all of chapter four this morning, and then like I said, we're going to focus on the first, call it ten verses uh, of the chapter um, for our conversation today. Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your revived rather your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned this secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, 
a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All of the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. All right, if you'll take a, a minute or two, write down any notes you have about verses, call it one through nine, um, and we're going to talk about a couple things in that section. So we'll take about a minute and a half for you to do that. Philippians 4, and right now we're focusing on 1 through 10. If you'd like to make a couple notes, we'll have conversation in that section. Philippians 4, 1 through 10. What did y'all take note of in Philippians 4? Alan? So in the first verse, chapter 4, he, he, he loves him, he tells him how much he loves him, but he still encourages him to see him. That's what we should always tell people is how much we love him and always encourage him. That's just a general. All right. So Alan's noticing in verse 1 um, that he, he speaks really highly of them, whom I love, I long for, my joy, my crown. Interestingly, this isn't the first time in the book where this concept of being the crown or the joy or relating something kind of looking towards salvation. Can you think of another example when Paul does that in the book? I didn't write down the passage. I believe it's towards the middle of chapter 2 when he talks about the fact that he wants, after he discusses um, giving up being with Christ to be with them, he references the fact that they are his joy in, in the Lord and also that there's a relationship to them being faithful and him being grateful and joyous and, and that back and forth consideration. So I think it's, it's interesting here, as, as Alan points out, he doesn't, he, there's very little, I would say, condemnation or you're really messing up, you know, as compared to like a first Corinthians, there's not a whole bunch of like really huge issues that are discussed in terms of sin uh, in this book. However, he's still encouraging them in multiple places that they need to stand firm, indicating a real concern on his part that they might not. Chip? Yeah, the teacher last week would have done a better job. Well, that guy. He would have covered this for 
Well, that guy never runs short on things to say, so he probably just didn't get there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's. This is more about chapter three than chapter four. Julie. Yeah, so he talked about stand firm in this manner, and earlier in chapter 3, he also used the phrase um, that you'll be faithful in this way, when you're, you can kind of connect those two as bookends to that section. All right, let's keep going into verses 2 and 3. Oh, wait, Wayne? You know, it's such positive reinforcement when you tell anyone they are your joy and your essentially crown. Yeah. When you, when you deal with children, your family, or when you deal with your employees, you know, it is to get a message like this from someone that that elevates them, eat him even higher in their eyes and how much they would hate to disappoint that person. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You would imagine that they would want to please Paul. It seems that the relationship between the Philippians and Paul is extremely close. And what that would indicate is he has significant influence over them. And I, I think it's really important to consider the difference between influence and power. Um, power is you have a position and therefore people kind of must do what you say. Um, influence actually has a lot more staying power. Because influence is, you look to someone, they explain to you why you should seek to be in, in such a way, and, and that is a much more reinforcing idea than, you just need to be faithful, just because you need to. Instead, you need to do this because of the love that we have, have for each other. I think there's a lot in leadership to think about in that idea. And there's something to lose. If, if you don't say this, I'm not going to love you. You know, there's something to lose. You're going to lose my love. That's very threatening. I'm going to lose. You're going to lose my love. I would. I would. I would phrase it a little differently well, in terms of. Threatening, but it's still something to lose. Yes, and and I would say, um, if you think about the the lesson Barry preached two weeks ago, in terms of how we relate to those that have fallen away, the relationship is what's at risk. In truth, the love isn't at risk. Well, that's true. The relationship is what's at risk in those things. All right, let's keep going. What else did y'all see? Tip. How would they be sitting in the building the day or the, or the field or wherever they're meeting and having this letter read in the Yodio and Santiki as yeah. they hear their names called out and say, you two need to resolve something. Yeah. I entreat Chip and I entreat Newton to be one in the Lord. Put the, bury the hatchet. I mean, but yeah, I mean, can you imagine being called out? Like, you guys get it. Work. Um, can you imagine that, that feeling that they had and how serious this must be for him to mention it? But what, anything strike you as interesting in this? Not just that they get called out, but what, what's interesting? Or what, what do you see, Sherry? Yeah. They have their part in the women and the women doing the work of God also. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point that he calls out these women as fellow laborers in the Lord, references that they are written in the, their names are written in the book of life. And really, if you think about the story of Philippians overall, that idea is really strong from the very beginning when um, Lydia is in the story and before Paul leaves Philippi after being in jail, he makes certain that they stop at Lydia's house to see the Christians before they go. What else do you notice about uh, this discussion with Yodi and Sintiki? Yes, ma'am. Even though he called them out, they had been, they had been working together. He says they struggled together, so they were working in the Lord yeah. while this was going on. Yeah, so a couple, a couple things to think about. We don't know what's going on. Like, we don't know why they are at odds. We only know that they are. And he says that their names are written in the book of life. So it doesn't seem that they have quarreled, fallen out, and fallen away. Partly, it wouldn't really make sense to put their names in the book if they weren't, you know, amongst those that the book would be read with. Um, but, but I think it's, it's important to notice that struggle amongst laborers shouldn't be surprising or unexpected. What other examples can you think of of struggle in the New Testament between laborers? Yeah, so John, Mark, and Paul and Barnabas. So um, when, when it was time to, to go on a journey, you look at Acts 16. Um, last night I was, so, I was tired and I was looking this passage up and I just couldn't figure out why this passage wasn't saying what I thought it should say. And then finally I realized I was in John 16. And... Um, <laughs> It took me longer to realize than it should have, but that's probably because I like fell asleep while I was studying a couple times. Um, Acts 16. Um, and so w- what was the struggle that happened then with Paul and Barnabas? Barry? Paul didn't want to take John Hart because he, uh, he dumped him <laughs> when they got to Pamphylia uh, and he just headed back home to Mommy's house. All right, so Barry takes a pretty harsh view of John Mark, in case you didn't hear his summary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we know, Barry, we know. All right, so here's a question. Were Paul and Barnabas at odds because of sin? But how could, it have, how could that situation have led to sin? Okay, so they could have verbally attacked one another, or they could, Paul could have verbally attacked John Mark. It doesn't seem to be that that happened. Wayne? I don't think it indicates a, a spirit of unforgiving spirit, which even it relates to these two ladies. If they wouldn't forgive whatever slights they felt, it would have been then seen. Right? Joshua? Yeah, so, great points. So, Paul and Barnabas likely could have led to a sinful situation if they had allowed this to create a real rift. And when I say real, I mean a rift that couldn't be repaired. Instead, what happened? What do you think about Paul and Barnabas? 
Compromise that led to what? It led, it led to like quite a few things. Restoration, the comments about John Mark and Paul. He later talks about their relationship and things seem to be good. Um, what other good things came from this situation? Alan, I think you said. The gospel spread, the gospel spread because before it was just going to be Paul and Barnabas with some guys going to them to one place. And what happened instead? They split up. And Paul took John, or sorry, Paul took Timothy. Barnabas took John Mark. They went to different places. The gospel was spread. More workers were involved. More young men were mentored in, in John Mark and Barnabas. And so I think the idea that sometimes we can get is that all conflict has to end in a right person and a wrong person. It has to end in um, kind of one group potentially being ex excluded. Um, it leads to continued infighting. And instead... If we look at the example of Paul and Barnabas, we can see that conflict, when approached correctly, can lead to significantly more work being done for the Lord. Now, often we look at conflict as a problem. And instead, I think we should try to look at conflict as an opportunity and not um, one that has to end in people never speaking to one another and congregation splitting and all kinds of terrible things. And that's how the gospel spread anyway. When there was persecution, they went to other places and taught the gospel. Yeah, exactly. Great point. Chip? And he could have, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but kind of going back to chapter 1, he could have called those men out. He could have talked about how terrible they were for, for their goals and motives. And instead he, in a way, kind of commended the work that they were doing, even if they were kind of doing it in a backhanded way. Yeah, so the word I would use is, is in rather than Barnabas and Paul, we could discredit each other for God's mark. Mm -hmm. And they would have, they would have less influence yes. by those who respected Barnabas and Paul. Same here. But he did want them to be peaceful. That's pretty weird. Exactly. So what's, what's the game? Yeah. Yeah, so I think we should consider what's the game by having to get on the same page. And interestingly, he entreats them, but then he also kind of gives charge. Who does he give charge to? I ask you also true companion. So who is true companion is a question we should ask. I can think of probably three or four different people who could be true companion. Who can give me one? No. 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 All right. Timothy could be one. Um, I think Timothy could be one, but it also kind of gets kind of weird because verse one, who's writing the book? I made a big deal about this. One verse one, 
Paul and Timothy are actually the authors. So, yeah, he's going to send Timothy. So it's interesting. Um, I kind of just mentioned that. It's like weird because they're both the authors listed, but then later Paul in his, in the, in the voice of Paul says he's going to send Timothy. So that would kind of indicate that maybe it could be Timothy who's the true companion, uh, even though he's listed as an author. Who else could be receiving this charge? Would you say? Yeah, I think Epaphroditus, if we're going to say it's a singular person, is likely who I would land on. Um, but how else could, could you interpret true companion here? Belinda? I went to Clement because he'd been working with him before. It said he knew both of them yeah. and worked with them before. Yeah, so Clement could be another one who is true companion here. And then, Alan, what did you say? All the saints. I think it could also be all the saints. That he's, he's using true companion almost to refer to the Philippian church as a unit, as a, as a group that is his true companion. I don't, I don't necessarily think it matters a ton that we like all align on who we think true companion is. But it is interesting to me that, that he's entreated these two ladies to agree, but then he's asked, or I would, I would say charged, um, other people to help them. Does that make you think of, you, of anything in Galatians? Galatians 6. I charge you to bear one another's burdens um, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Um, so these ladies need to get back together, but others have the responsibility to help them get back together and to be right uh, with one another. With a good question, make who is a true companion? Um, I, you could ask who, who is a true companion. I don't think this passage tells us. Mm. Because he's, he's kind of, he's not saying you and you. He's not putting one of them first, as might indicate this was the one he needs it most. It is a, a very much a letter written to a lot of individuals. Mm. I think you could, you could go down that path. It's not probably one that I, I would. <laughs> um, all right, anything else about these sections this section about Eurodia and Syntyche. Joshua? It's a, I think it's called back to chapter 2 where he said that the tribes of the same unity of mind. Yeah, 2 verse 2? Yeah. Yeah. So Eurodia and Syntyche need to come together to, and this argument could help them get to the same unity of mind. Yeah. Bring something to light. Hey, there's a problem. We need to figure out what Yes, so Joshua makes a great point. If you go back to 2 verse 2, he instructs them to be of one mind. I also love that Joshua referenced, again, that conflict creates an opportunity because it highlights that there's some discord or disagreement. That means that before there was truly a, a disagreement or, or discord between them, there was not alignment. So the conflict actually highlights the problem, and in highlighting the issue, you can work through it and address it. If, if it never kind of comes to the surface, it can continually be this kind of pick or knit in the background. Um, but that's how, in one way, that conflicts an opportunity. All right. 
Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. If, if there's any, call it two passages that are going to be quoted from Philippians, it's going to be Philippians 4 verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, or 4.13, um, you know, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Those are your most quoted passages from the book. Um, yeah, just take them right out of context and have no idea what to do with them. Um, but you can quote them to people for sure. Um, so this rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Um, I think the first thing I would just say about this is we can mistakenly read this as a command or command it to others. That when others are facing some struggle or strife, we tell we just rejoice in the Lord. You just always do that. Just keep doing that. I, I, don't, I don't think that's what he means here. Um, what you say? That conflicts with other passages. Yes, that conflicts with other passages. So what, what does this mean? How should we take these next few verses, if you kind of see rejoice in the Lord always as the entrance to the next couple things he's going to say, what does that mean? How are we supposed to rejoice in the Lord always? Or how would you kind of combine that with the next couple verses to understand it a little better? Okay, so you're not going to be anxious. And why does he tell you that you're not going to be anxious? So what Alan said under his breath is because you rejoice in the Lord. I think the rejoicing is a result, not a cause. Mara, what were you going to say? The whole section is you have a reason to rejoice in the Lord because you have peace that is all understanding. God is always providing you a way to rejoice within Yes, so I think you could look at, call it um, verse 6, don't be anxious, everything in prayer and supplication, um, and then the peace of God, that all of those things work together to allow us to rejoice always. Jacob? Um, I like the thing in this chapter is these, the encouragement that Paul is giving the Philippians isn't based on his opinion, it's based on promises and facts that... Uh, call it verse 5, the Lord is at hand. That's a fact. And that's an encouragement for us today. Uh, verse 7, that God, you know, the God of peace will guard your hearts and minds. Verse 9, uh, God of peace will be with you. And then again, verse 19, God's going to supply every need. And their faith and encouragement is to be grounded in these promises from God. They don't have to wonder what's going to happen. And, you know, he goes on not being anxious, but then Paul talks about himself learning how to become content. Yeah. So you, if you don't have those things, you can't rejoice unless you're content and yeah. not anxious. So it all kind of blends together. Yeah, I think this is one of those times where because we're focusing on, call it 10 verses, and then next week we're going to focus on the next 10 verses, the risk that we have is by breaking those up, we actually um, don't see what Jacob is pointing out. That a lot of the reason that we can rejoice in the Lord is over and over he talks about the provision that God has made. A lot of that ends up in the second half of chapter 4. Um, uh, but I think that all goes back to why can we rejoice. Um, but I, I, I do want to talk about um, verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So reasonableness is what uh, the ESV translates it as. Um, Julie, are you, do you have your home in Christian? Yeah. What do you got? Verse 4, or 5 rather. 
Instead of, it, our version says reasonableness. Yeah, so Coleman Christian says graciousness. Does anybody have the New King James or NIV? All right, you've got, all right, so yours says moderation. Um, I heard someone, gentleness is in New King James and NIV. What other, do we have New American Standard anywhere? Forbearing spirit, gentle spirit. So New American Standard, the first version versus the second version, uh, they have a slightly different different thing. Um, nobody using the, the NLT? Probably not, probably not. Um, it says considerate in all you do. So if you put all those, so, so this is one of those times when you're studying, I, I don't, I'm not the guy that's going to go look at the Greek. It, Barry can do that or help you with that if, if you want that in your life. I'm just going to look at a bunch of versions. And so you can always tell that translators are a little troubled when you put 10 versions all next to each other and they all have a slightly different word or phrase. So thus far we've had reasonableness, gentleness, uh, considerate in all you do, gentle spirit, graciousness. That would tell you some translators are having some issues because whatever word is being used in the Greek, they, they, they can't all agree on what it's supposed to mean um, in, in the English. And so we kind of have to make some decisions about what does it mean, all right? So I think it's a little bit difficult to use let your reasonableness be known to everyone and use reasonableness as like the bridge to rejoice in the Lord always. I think that's hard for me, but I'm not actually certain that gentleness, gentle spirit, or graciousness is any clearer. I, I think connecting this back to the Euodia and Syntyche discussion and not assuming that that ended at the end of our verse 3, because remember, like, they didn't have verses back then, so they just read all this together. Rejoice in the Lord always, and then let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I think this is a continuation of the Yodia and Syntyche discussion, that while there is conflict, how are they supposed to move through the conflict? Julie, what were you going to say? You're getting out there. I looked at 12 different versions. I didn't get kindness and fairness. She might just be making it up. Who knows? But they would definitely fit. Chip? I think this, and I agree with you, starting with Yoni, Yoni is ticking all the way through the verses to begin at verse 8 um, is, a, is the bridge for me to how I have joy. If I, if I focus on mental, if my, my mindset about you is to think about the honorable things, the true things, the right things, the pure things, then my opinion of you is going to be more of a positive nature as a, as, as a, and rather than being inclined to be maybe critical and negative. Yeah. And so that's my bridge for having joy. Yeah. I, I think um, the, a question I think it's worth posing to ourselves, if we think about the conflict that these ladies are going through, which potentially means the congregation is going through that conflict as well. I think that's especially true when it's big enough that Paul's mentioning it with the whole group. What would it look like here if in all of our conflicts we were described as being at conflict or at odds with each other, but we did it in a way that could be described as reasonable, gentle, gracious, 
with a gentle spirit. Like that's how you have conflict that serves the Lord instead of separates the people of God. Is that even though you don't agree, even though we don't align on all things, we still would be described as anyone watching that as being reasonable and gentle and kind. If, if we can think about that idea and focus on it anytime we as a group are at odds about certain things, how can I move through this conflict that afterwards I would be described as reasonable and gentle? How would our conflicts potentially change? I wouldn't get my way. Yeah, you might not get your way. Which, um, there's a book called Peacemakers um, that Max and Karen turned Crystal Island to. Some of us have studied it together. Um, it is a wonderful book about making peace. And one of, the, one of the number one touchstones in the book is that you can't have an idea of focusing on peace if you are focused on having your way and you needing to be right. Paul didn't tell these people to be right. He told them to be reasonable and gentle. And so in our conflicts, if we can focus on that instead of how can I be proven right or have my way or get the thing I want, our conflicts will look much, much different. Jacob mentioned um, the Lord is at hand as an example of why you can rejoice. So, so first, I think there's probably two or three things that we could talk about with that. But, but just first, like the idea of the Lord being at hand, that implies a soonness. Well, how long has it been since this was written? A couple guesses. Just hold on. <laughs> He's got an idea. This would be 2,000 years-ish, not quite, like 1980 years or something since this was written. So does soonness in terms of time make sense here? So Elizabeth, are you saying yes? you think it does? No. Or just you think it's a good question? Okay. So I don't think that you can interpret this as time when he says soon. But Barry, do you think you can? No. All right, make your comment. Oh, I was just going to say at hand. And I think some versions say near. Yes. Uh, the idea of he's, his presence is always here and he's watching. We need to consider that when we're having conversations. How do you treat Yes, so um, that the idea of near or at hand isn't the idea of um, like the judgment day coming potentially, but that the Lord is always present hearing what you're doing and seeing what you're doing. But I think a, a contrast to that, we have a whole bunch of passages in the New Testament that would kind of not exactly say that it's not about time. So for example, 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Romans 13, 11, and 12, um, salvation is nearer Night is gone, day is at hand. Hebrews 10.25, all the encouraging their activity, all the more as the day draws near. Or James 5.8, the day of the Lord is at hand. So 
I, th- I think that there is a concept of the nearness being that the Lord is kind of omnipresent, omniscient, so we have to control ourselves and we can be encouraged by that. But also it would seem that if you look at all these other passages I just mentioned, that there is a consistent theme in the New Testament that is that judgment is coming. It is, should be described as soon or near. I, th- I think that there's a, there's a conflict a little bit because it's hard to say 2,000 years is soon or, or near. Um, I think there's another way to think about this, though. Um, in the prophets, one of the most confusing things when you read prophecy is sometimes it's written in the present or past tense, even though it's talking about the future. Why, why is prophecy sometimes written that way? Things that are being prophesied or spoken of as though they've already happened. What did you say, Julie? Yeah, they're so certain. So, so, when you prophesied, so when they prophesied, sometimes they would speak as though the things had occurred because things were so certain to happen that you didn't have to talk about them in a future conditional sense. You could talk about them in a past tense, already achieved method. And so I think there's some of that idea here is that you can be certain that the day of the Lord approaches and he is coming. So Jacob specifically said that because of that, we can rejoice. Do all people rejoice at the idea of judgment coming? Who rejoices when judgment comes? Darlene? Yeah, so those that are his, or you could say that a little differently, when the judge comes... The one who is excited about the judge coming is the one who's on a certain side of that judgment. And especially if you think about it in terms of a people that are potentially oppressed, judgment is an idea of hope because judgment speaks of, I will not be in this oppressed state forever. Instead, in the future, I can look forward to being kind of on the right side of of the law, if you want to put it that way. It is a hopeful idea. So here when he tells them they can rejoice in the Lord always, and one of the reasons the day of the Lord is near is because they can be certain that when judgment comes, rejoicing is the outcome for them. Sherry. Specifically, as 
Zechariah as well. But those end time prophecies did not have to do with the end of time, but end time as far as the particular nation and the world was concerned. I hope you could hear it, because I'm not going to say it all again. <laughs> but if you weren't, we're going to talk about that on Wednesday. So. Uh, the, the point just being that some of these conversations in, in the New Testament about the end is at hand are about the end of a period, um, not, not all looking forward to judgment. That's a good point. It, anything else about this before we kind of finish out the section today? Wayne? You know, when it talks about all men, I think it's talking about the drawing power of not only the gospel, but of that peaceful thing that the world sees when we get along. And not only among us, but that that peace that I think when you study with people that are struggling, that you want them to draw, you want them to see Jesus close to them. That's the object. You know, it's, it's it, and I think that I, I went over the song, Jesus draw me ever near. It's not that he's as close as he can get. Hmm. Anything else? Josh, were you going to say something? When I heard of uh, reasonableness, I thought of Acts 15 when it meant the Jews, when everyone drew together in the church of Jerusalem and reasoned together yeah. on the matter of circumcision. I, I love that point. So, what Joshua said is he kind of thought back to Acts 15 when. Um, all of the, or so many of the, the Christians, the leaders came together to discuss the concept of circumcision and that um, reasoning and reasonableness seem to go hand in hand. I think that's a great point. Um, as we continue looking at this section, um, I think it's worth noting that he gives these ideas or concepts directly after rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Um, Everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here, when he talks about the peace of God, um, how does that connect to the prayers that, you're, that are being made and then the guarding of your hearts? How do those concepts work together? So I make my petitions known to the Lord. And then the peace of God guards our hearts and minds. Why? Sherry? Because you know it's going to work out for the best for God. God is going to do these things going to work out for the best. It may not seem like it's the best, but actually it really is the best of God. Okay, so Sherry just said some things that I think you have to be really careful how you interpret. So one of the things she said is all things are going to work out. I think that is true, but I think in this context we have to be careful that we understand that that is a direct reference to our spiritual state. When someone is struggling, and especially when there is physical sickness or death, do not say to them, everything is going to work out. I think we can talk about the fact that the Lord will work out all things for our salvation. 
But for example, as you think about Drew and Sarah and how you approach them, these concepts of letting your requests be made known to God and that his peace will then guard your hearts. It is related to knowing that God works out all things for our salvation. But the guarding of our hearts is a result of knowing that we can trust in that salvation, not that all things are going to work out. Does that, make, does that difference make sense? Making certain that whenever we talk about the things that the Lord is working out, he may or may not work out physical things to an end that we prefer. He is guaranteed that he will work out spiritual things to an end that we prefer if we attain to his righteousness. Chip? Yeah, I'd put a point on that. When Jesus prayed to the, in the garden, for, if, if it be his will for this cup to be removed, if God's response was, it's all going to work out, it may not have been the answer that Jesus would, would have liked to have heard, but indeed, it all worked out for the salvation of mankind. Yeah, agreed. So we did not get to talk about really verses 8 and 9, I would encourage you this week to look at this idea of whatever is just and pure and think about these things and look in the rest of Philippians for places where he talks about purity or blamelessness. And the assignment is to consider how does, why does Paul spend so much time in Philippians talking about the need to be blameless and how can we possibly do that? Thanks, y'all. Appreciate